I've been assigned today the topic of worship, worship, and uh, we're going to spend most of our time today in John chapter 4, John chapter 4, and you can turn that direction, make sure I'm on, all right. I think uh, through all of the uh, the headache of COVID, we, we heard some of these slogans through uh, through the months as that drug on that uh, there were those who were under a lot of pressure not to gather and worship, and uh, you begin to hear things and even see t-shirts that said things like, the church she gathers, the church she worships. We heard these things because um, I think it brought into focus for many of us the, um, the need of the people of God to gather together and worship the Lord. There were many churches and, and people that uh, believed, even after a long period of time, that, that, that you didn't have to come together to do that. That's something you could farm out and do on the internet. And I always tell people that the internet's a blessing of God when used properly, and it's a, it can be helpful and supplemental when you're sick or uh, providentially hindered from being at church, but it is not the church. It is not the worship of the church. The church gathers together to worship. I'm here to tell you today that worship should be the priority of the church. And the reason I say that is because as the church is commanded to make disciples, as my brother shared this morning, and as the church is commanded to proclaim the gospel, as Brother Harold shared last night, it is the worship of the church that equips us, empowers us, and strengthens us to carry forward that task. If, those, if that is the mission of the church, that we are to go forth making disciples, go forth proclaiming the gospel, the, the training and strengthening that we experience happens in the worship of the church. And so we, it, it, I think it's, it's very important in our day that we recognize our, our proper uh, idea of what worship is. Because again, as I said, worship prepares us. Because as we come together and we worship the Lord, as we sing great songs that are biblically based as we have this morning, as we hear the word of God preached, as we observe the ordinances of the church and those things take place, what what happens is that worship puts God in his right place and it puts us in our right place. As we recognize God is high and lifted up and we lay ourselves before him in the act of worship, we realize that He is the one who is all-powerful, almighty. He is the one who's in control. He is the one who has authority, as has already been shared today. And so today what I want to do, I want us to examine really to begin with the heart and the foundation of worship. And then I want us to see that, that worship has always been a mark of the people of God. And then we'll look at briefly at a a pattern of worship in the church. So I'm going to share with you from a passage that many of you will know, but we're going to just take an excerpt from it. We're going to go to the passage of the woman at the well in John chapter 4, but we're going to focus in on just one piece of the conversation that she has with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to begin reading in verse 19. There the Bible says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. 
Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Pray with me for just a moment. Lord, help us this morning. We are a needy people. We are a people who, apart from you, can do nothing. And Lord, I pray as we look into your word that it will equip us, it will strengthen us, perhaps convict us, challenge us. It will move us more uh, in the direction you would have us to go. It would shape us more into the image of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. And amen. So, Obviously, the context of this passage is the entire episode of the woman at the well. And there's much more happening in this, uh, in this account than we're going to look at today. But I don't think I'm robbing the passage uh, by diving in on this section of it to look at the realities of worship. As this woman begins to speak to Jesus, or really Jesus begins to speak to her, we, we come to this place... Right after Jesus has confronted this woman with her sin. She has been, she'd come and, and, and doing the coming and gathering water at the well and he's spoken to her. And then he, he confronts her with the reality of her uh, illicit sexual behavior, her, her um, uh, ungodly divorce, all these types of things that he brings to her attention. And notice what she does. She immediately tries to bring up something else. Right? She's like, she's like, well, okay, but yeah, but what, what about this? What about this? What about this little issue over here? What about worshiping on this mountain or on that mountain, worshiping in Jerusalem? What, what about that? You ever notice how the details of the gathered worship of the saints becomes a really convenient hobby horse, a really convenient topic to distract from the deeper sinful issues that we really ought to be addressing? In the church, I mean it. About 80% of fussing and fighting in churches happens gathered around the, the gathering of the church and what we're going to do and how we're going to do it and what we're going to sing and how we're going to sing it and, and all of those kinds of things. She was confronted about her sin and she said, well, I want to I talk about this thing. And a lot of times when we focus on all of these details. Now look, hear me say there are uh, important aspects that we need to guard and protect within the gathered worship of the church. But if all we're doing is nitpicking over this and that, there's probably a deeper issue at hand. Worship is the issue. Because when we, when we are in sin, when our heart is poisoned by sin, we, we begin to have a worship disorder. Right, I, I, uh, a friend of mine, Mark Shaw, a guy that I know a little bit, he, he, he's written a lot of great books, but he talks about in a book really addressing the subject of addiction that all of sin is a worship disorder. That's what it is. We have decided to worship something else. We have made an idol of something else. And so when we refuse to worship God, we're going to worship something. 
Whenever we give over some area of our life to, to sinfulness, we have chosen, at least in that corner of our life, to worship someone or something besides the Lord our God. Sinful, bitter hearts. That's the problem that keeps us from worshiping the way we should. It makes, in fact, I think worship impossible. It's easier to nitpick something in the service. It's easy to, easier to fuss about the thermostat. And look, I've been a preacher over a decade now, and I have heard a lot of nitpicky stuff about church, and so have all these other preachers and most of you church members. And that's okay. I know there's some things we got to address, some things we got to deal with. But friends, it's about the heart. Worship is a heart issue. And when our heart is not right, worship will not be right. I want you to know, though, it's not just church members, preachers, that get sidetracked this way. That we, that we say, well, we got a whole lot of issues. There's a lot of sinful things that are happening within the context of the life of the church that we really should address at a deeper level. And instead, what do we do? We're going to change something about how the worship's done. And that's going to fix everything. And, and it can go both directions. And I know in, in the crowd of guys that, that we kind of run around with that, you know, we, we like to throw rocks at, at those people that go the, the area of the, the sideshow in the circus. Right? They, they do all kinds of crazy things. And look, they need some, some rocks thrown at them. Hear me say that. All right? But we, we kind of fuss about that and we say, man, uh, that's crazy. Some preachers think, well, if we just do something like this and everybody will just enjoy it and all that other stuff will kind of take care of itself. But in our crowd and folks kind of like us, the way it happens more often, it seems, uh, in, in, in our circles is that people go the other way. We're going to go hardcore the other direction and we're going to get so traditional and so liturgical and if we'll just do that, everything will take care of itself. Now hear me say I, I, I'm, I believe that we need to sing the right kind of songs. I believe we need to worship in the right kind of way. But just doing that will never address the heart of the issue. Worship is a heart issue. Both ends of the spectrum, the, the concert or the show or the liturgical, traditional, whichever way you go, just tweaking those things will never, never gather the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in a, in a more fruitful way of worship. Because the big, biggest issue, as I've said, is the heart of the worshiper. I want to read to you from Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. There the Bible says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. What's Jesus telling? Jesus tells them that it, something as important as leaving your, your offering, leaving your gift, an act of worship, if there is a, a sinful disagreement, if there is a conflict that, that has potential even to poison more of the church, if, there's a, if there is a, a dis, not, not just a disagreement, but there is someone who has been sinned against, and repentance is necessary. And God brings that to your mind. You better go deal with that and then come back and you'll be ready to worship. I'm going to tell you so many times we don't prepare ourselves for worship. 
We don't, we don't pray. We don't repent. We don't allow God to search our hearts through the Scriptures in that way in which we can, we can gather together in, in, in the right kind of way. Now, I know many times the worship gathering is used of God to be the agent of conviction. I understand that. But I think most of us, if we would take that time beforehand through the week, on Saturday night, on Sunday morning early, if we would get before God, sometimes He'd deal with those things before we got in the service and got all over us. God wants our hearts to be right. That's the foundational truth of worship. It's the, it's the prerequisite of true worship. Do you see how he begins as he's addressing this woman in this passage? I love what he says there in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. Believe me. That's, the, that's, the, that's another piece of the foundational realities of worship, isn't it? That in order to worship in the way that we should, it, it comes from the foundation of believing what Jesus says about everything, including worship. That we worship according to His precepts. We worship on His terms. And as He, as he dives into it, he, he says, Believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. I believe the principle that Jesus is showing us here, that we know because we practice it, is that in the new covenant, location is not a major concern of the people of God as it pertains to worship. It's just not. Because if it was, we got no business being here this morning. We all better go and buy a plane ticket and get, get all the way over to Jerusalem if we're going to worship the way that, that they thought they needed to worship. That location is not the concern. But, but notice this. He does take a moment to make sure that she knows she's wrong. I do appreciate that about Jesus here. right? He says, now the time's coming that, that this isn't an issue, but he, he does in verse 22 say, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. He said, now look, the time's coming when this isn't going to be a problem. This isn't going to be something to consider concerning worship. But he says, you're wrong about this. Right? We, we, we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. He does take a moment to address that. I just like to point that out. But the location of the gathering in the new covenant under the blood of Christ, that's not the issue of worship. We do not have to worship on a particular mountain. We don't have to worship in a particular building. All we've got to do is worship a particular God with a particular people. That's the command of the Bible. That's the command of the New Testament. Friends, I'm here to tell you that the church building is a blessing, but it's not a necessity. I've been places, and so have many of you, where they worship God in places that if you tried to get people to worship God here in that way, in that kind of location, they'd look at you sideways. People can worship. Anywhere. The people of God can gather and worship anywhere. Under a tree somewhere. In an old lean-to somewhere. One of the questions that I always try to bring up for people whenever the idea of worship and people getting hung up on buildings and all that kind of stuff comes up. As I ask them, if everything here in the United States of America changed overnight and we woke up tomorrow and Christianity was illegal and the gathering of the church was completely illegal and there was no way and no, no, no way that we could gather in a place like this and doing what we're doing today. Is your church prepared to go underground? Could you, in fact, would your people worship without all the modern day trappings that we have brought forth? Will we? Would we? I'd like to think I would. 
I'm going to tell you something. I praise God every summer for the man who invented air conditioning. I do. I do. And I like to sit in comfortable pews and chairs. And I, I, like to, I like to be able to be in a place where everything looks nice and smells good and all that stuff. But if we had to gather in a barn where the manure is piled four feet high in one corner just to make sure we were worshiping God, would we be willing? I pray that we would. I pray that our hearts would be prepared to worship in that way because it is the heart that is the, it is the precondition of worship, the heart submitted to God in salvation through repentance and faith, and the heart that is right with God, able to worship in spirit and truth. That's what Jesus is going to say in these next couple of verses. Verse 23 and 24. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. He says, the time is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in this way, in spirit and in truth. Do you notice that He qualifies that? He doesn't just say that all worshipers are going to be able to do this. He doesn't say that anybody that shows up and proclaims to be worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ is going to worship in spirit and truth. He says, no, the true worshipers of God, they will worship in spirit and truth. Not they should worship in spirit and truth, but if they are the people of God, called of God, bought by the blood of the Lamb, baptized, by, baptized in the church, if they're, if they're those people, if the ones that have been convicted of sin and come under the conviction of the Holy Ghost and repented of their sins, and they are those who are seeking to please God in all things, the thing that will mark them is that they will worship in spirit and in truth. It's interesting to note here that in this passage, spirit is not a capital S. It's not Holy Spirit that Jesus is mentioning here. It's the spirit of a man. The spirit being really the inner man. He, he's, he's telling us that, that we, we have to make sure that if we're going to be worshiping, it's not about the outward trappings. It's not about how we look. It's not about how we're perceived. It's about the inner man truly worshiping. The transformed heart working itself outward. So many times we're worried about how we're being perceived. We're worried about what people are thinking. We're worried about what it looks like when we've gathered together in worship. That's why some people won't sing. Some people won't sing because they're worried that somebody might hear them. I'm here to tell you, if somebody says something about the way you sing, their, their heart's the one that needs to be dealt with. You need to stand and sing the glories of your God with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, praise God, I sit on the front pew every morning, so the only people who have to hear me is the people on stage, and they got speakers aimed at them too, and so, praise God, they probably don't hear me. And that's a good thing. But it doesn't matter. I've, I pastored a church in Virginia. Brother Harold's been there. It's a little church. The platform's about, you know, one-tenth of the size of this platform, and there were times when the couple of ladies that would help lead the hymns didn't show up. And guess what? Guess who led, led the music that morning? I did. And so what I would do is I would get up and I would announce the hymn and the microphone would be here and I would take one big step and that's all you could take without falling off. I'd take one big step over here and I'd lead the singing. Why? 
Because it wasn't about the skill of the singing. It's about the worship of the one true God in the Lord Jesus Christ. We worship in spirit and in truth. This, is, this really uh, harkens back to the idea of worshiping in heart, soul, mind, and strength. This inner man. That's, that's what he's getting at. That's what he's trying to tell this woman. The statement here is that worship is rooted in the reality of the inner man. If you are not transformed by the power of God through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot worship. You cannot worship. You might play at it. You might look like it. You might say you are. It doesn't matter. If you are not transformed, you cannot worship God. It's false worship. It's a game. It's a, it's a routine for you. It's, it's an expectation that you're trying to fulfill. And honestly, it's a pain in the neck. What are you doing? If your heart hadn't been transformed by the power of the gospel, I mean, really, what are you doing? Why are you putting on a show? You know, I've, I'm, I'm really often talk about this, but one of the things that I've recognized is I've studied some things through the years and, and, and looking at things and researching certain things, I found that there's this, this phenomenon that's taken place really in the last, probably some people would say longer, but I'd say 10 to 20 years. Where in our country, there used to be a cultural expectation of Christianity, right? And if you wanted to come to a town like Van Buren, and you wanted to come to a town like Ozark, and you wanted to be able to do business at all, you better be in a church somewhere. I mean, to the point where it's widely reported and there's some evidence to find that there were certain business schools in certain places that would teach people. If you're going in somewhere to start business and you're going to be involved in the business activities of a town, you need to go in, you need to join the largest church you can find, and and better yet, if you can get to where you can teach Sunday school or be a deacon. And they told them that. To use the church as an avenue of business. And, and, and so there was this cultural expectation and there was a cultural benefit to being a Christian in our country. And I want to tell you, I want to tell you something that should encourage you. That even though that cultural benefit of Christianity is disappearing largely in our nation, right? That's really a good thing because the people that, that were there for the wrong reasons, they're, they're drifting away. And pray, we'll pray to God that God will convict their hearts truly and they will return unto the fellowship of Christ. But those that would pretend and seek to use the church for the wrong kind of things. It's a good thing. But I want to encourage you with this. If you study all the, dem- the, the demographers and the statisticians, they'll tell you that uh, with certain markers, if you, they had different divisions, but there was the cultural Christian, and then there was, the, you know, the, there was kind of a middle of the road, like the nominative, nominative Christian, and then there was the, the committed Christian. And they had certain markers that you had to meet to be a committed Christian, and it's, it's kind of some basic markers we would say a certain level of church attendance a certain level of bible study a certain level of of you know self-reporting on i'm praying this often but what they've what's been recognized in the past couple of decades is that even though overall the church in america is decreasing in numbers if you look at attendance and church membership and things like that what we're finding is is that that level of committed christians has been practically stable Right? Even those who were claiming to be church members, they weren't meeting any of these committed requirements. And so they were falling into these other areas. 
And so the, the committed Christians, those who were gathering with the body, those who were serving in the church, those who were studying their Bibles, that number has, has pretty well maintained through the years. And that's an encouragement because that tells me that the bride of Christ is being cleaned up for the wedding day. It tells me that the, the church is being purified. And that's a good thing. Even if it means there's a few empty seats. We pray God will fill them, but fill them the right way through the proclamation of the gospel and repentance and faith. And so he says that the inner man has to be transformed. That's what a worshiper, a true worshiper looks like. And he says they will worship. They will worship. I want to step aside into the book of Genesis for a moment to show you this reality that worship has always been the mark of the people of God. I'm going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, towards the end of the chapter, we are just after Cain has killed Abel. And the Bible comes to tell us about the blessing of God upon Adam and Eve that He's going to give them another son, a new line. And here's what the Bible says, beginning in verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born. And he named him Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. If you look at this and you begin to understand, right, the, the, there was the... the line of Cain that's given to us a few verses before that in chapter 4 and you hear all about Cain and you hear all about their nonsense you you hear about you hear about Lamech who was the uh, n- not the Lamech of Seth's line but the Lamech of Cain's line who was as far as we know the first polygamist in the Bible right and he was a wicked wicked man we hear all about the wickedness and the worldliness of Cain's line they were, they were all cranked up, right? Because, because he had Lamech. He was proud because he had these sons. He had, he, had, uh, he had Jubal, right? Jubal was the father of all those who play the harp and the flute, right? And then he also had Jabal. Jabal was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And then there was Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. You want to know why Lamech was so cocky? Because his family had cattle, his family had, had the artistic pursuits, and his family, they had the weaponry. Tubal Cain could make things of bronze, right? Yeah, they probably made implements, they probably made tools, but they made weapons too, I'm sure. Lamech was all wrapped up in the world. Cain's line was all wrapped up in the world. They had everything that you could have by a worldly perspective. And Lamech was cocky. So much so that he just kind of said, nobody's going to touch me, right? If, if, there's, if you, messing with Cain brought a punishment, messing with me is going to bring some more. And then there's an account of him killing a man and, and all of these things. But what does the line of Seth tell us? Right at the beginning. Right at the beginning. Two generations. Enosh is born to Seth. And it says, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. The godly line, the holy line, the line that would produce for us uh, 
Everyone, really, obviously, after the flood, it would produce in this line Noah. It would produce in this line eventually King David. It would produce in this line the Lord Jesus Christ. This line, the mark of this line, is that they worship the Lord. They call upon the name of the Lord. And if you, if you look at those, that phrase, call upon the name of the Lord, that's not just, hey, God, right? This is a term of worship. In Genesis chapter 12, 8, in 13, 4, in 21, 33, we see Abram worshiping at an altar that he has built to the one true God. Same phrase. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16, in verse 8, I'm actually, I'm going to turn there real quick. Chapter 16, verse 8, this is the beginning of David's song of thanksgiving when the ark has been returned to its proper place. And he says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. David is worshiping, praising God, giving thanks to Him, calling upon the name of the Lord. But there's another place that this phrase is, similar phrase is used. It's over in Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 5. And here's what it says. It doesn't sound the same, at least in my translation, the New King James, but it says this. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's. And, his na- and name himself by the name of Israel. That same phrase, it's a very similar phrase, is used right here in Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 5. And so what's interesting is, is this is not just worship. This is identification by worship. Right? He says, I am the Lord's. I will call myself by the name of Jacob. The same phrase that we're using for worship over here is used for identification over here. What does that tell us? It tells us that, that the identification as the people of God is inextricably linked to worship. If you do not worship, you are not God. Just as our brother said this morning, if you're not making disciples, you're a counterfeit. If you're not worshiping, you're a counterfeit. He says, we are to worship in spirit and in truth. Right? We cannot worship God as we want Him to be. We cannot worship God on our own terms. Cain tried that. didn't work very well. He tried to come to God his own way. And God despised his offering. We can't be all enthusiasm and no substance. All hat, no cattle. Right? But, hear me brothers, You can't be all content with no zeal either. You just can't. Look, I've been in meetings. I've been in churches where they preach the truth. But as my mentor used to say, it was about dry as cracker juice. Y'all been there too. Y'all pastored some of them churches. We have to have our content right. We got to know the truth. But, the truth should produce in us a zeal, a love, an outpouring of affection toward God and the brethren. MacArthur says it this way, the extremes of dead orthodoxy, that is truth with no spirit, and zealous heterodoxy, that is spirit and no truth, must be avoided. We've got to stay away from both ends of those extremes. And we must proclaim the truth in the power of the Spirit of God, yes, but through the power of the transformed Spirit that God has given us. True worship comes from a zealous heart according to the truth, not in spite of it. 
Our heart is zealous because of the truth that we know. We don't worship in spite of the truth. So how do we do it? How do we go about it? How do we worship in spirit and in truth? Well, I believe Colossians 3.16 has something to offer us there. Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. The Bible says, to begin with, I believe the pattern of worshiping in spirit and truth looks something like this. You teach and you admonish. Teaching is, is the transfer of information, proclaiming the truth, sharing the truth, expounding the truth. It's to import knowledge according to the word. To admonish is to confront, to warn, but also according to the word. Hear me when I say this. Sometimes, if I'm not careful, if we're not careful as Christians, we warn people against things that the Bible doesn't warn them against. We're a little overzealous. I said zeal's a good thing, but taking zeal into the territory of opinion and preference is another thing. We don't need to allow our preference to override the realities of worshiping and teaching and admonishing in the way that God commands, which is according to His Word. And brothers and sisters, worshiping according to His Word, that, there's, a, there's a framework that that fits in that, that looks different than Lee Creek Baptist Church. It looks different than West Park Baptist Church. I'm going to tell you something. Go somewhere else. Go to Africa. Go to Haiti. Go to some of these places that some of you have been said I've been. Go to where our brother has been in Russia and and understand that just because it doesn't look like the way that we do it doesn't mean that it's necessarily wrong. It needs to be within the parameters of the truth. Absolutely. But it's worship. We're to teach. We're to impart knowledge. We're to warn where the Bible warns and teach where the Bible teaches. Even in song, this is really connected to to the singing here. Our songs need to be right. That's a, big, that's a big place we, we really have to fight. And this isn't old worship wars over the type of music, about what kind of music it's going to be. This is about the content of the music. That's what we're fighting about today. And honestly, it's a good fight. Sometimes we take it too far. But it is something we ought to have our minds on and our hearts on and be discerning about. Because there's a lot of nonsense out there that's masquerading under the, the music that's being shared and it is leading people astray. So the truth and the admonishing is even present in the songs. I saw a posting the other day. Somebody said, I don't care what you call me. I sang a worship song in church this morning that called me worse than you did. Right? Some of those old songs that just really get at you, really cut at you. We sing those. and we should. We should warn and admonish and teach even in our music. So we teach, we admonish, we sing together. I love coming to Lee Creek Baptist Church. I like, I mean, like I said, I love worshiping at my church. I love coming here. I love going down uh, to Brother Vincent's church where Brother Brandon preaches and the way that they worship and worshiping with them and hearing the people of God sing. A church that sings typically is a worshiping church, right? A church that loves the truth of the Bible and sings. And I love a singing church. 
We sing the word of God. We worship in that way. And we worship as we're taught and admonished through the preaching of the word of God. And finally, it looks like worshiping in spirit and truth. Yes, it looks like the gathered church worshiping in the proper way. But it looks like living in obedience. Brother Joseph addressed this in a Sunday sermon here at Lee Creek. I know because I listened to it. Chapter 12, verse 1 of the book of Romans says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, or some translations say reasonable worship. Presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice. Hear this, churches. Hear this, pastors. Corporate worship that does not impact daily living is a show. If our worship doesn't go beyond these walls, it's a show. And we're, we're, we're accomplishing very little if there's, if there's nothing that goes beyond the parking lot. We might sing the right things in here. We might preach the right things in here. We might even talk about the right things on the parking lot, but you know that's probably not true. And then we get on out there. When we get out into this world, if there is nothing that comes from here that ends up out there, this has been a sham, a show. Living in obedience. Obedience is greater than sacrifice. Walk in the ways of the Word of God. Live according to the truth. Allow the worship of the gathered church to strengthen you, to challenge you, to prod you and provoke you forward to live in a way that honors and glorifies God. She, the woman at the well kind of understood this a little bit, not much yet, but she was hinting at it at the end of that passage I read earlier. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ when he comes. When he comes, he will tell us all things. She said, she knew that when the Messiah came, he'll tell us what we're supposed to be doing. When he comes, he'll, he'll tell us how to live. When he comes, he'll tell us how to worship. When, when Jesus shows up, he'll, he'll handle these things. When the Christ is here, he'll tell us. He has told us all things. He, Jesus says it. I who speak to you am he. He said, yeah, you're right, and I'm here. Listen. Obey. Worship. Friends, obedience is worship. Friends, singing is worship. Preaching is worship. Baptism is worship. Giving is worship. And we need to do all these things according to the, pre, the, the precepts of God through the word of Jesus Christ. What he has told us teaching, as, we, as he talked about earlier, teaching them all things that he has commanded. And when we live according to those commands, we are worshiping him. Obedience is worship. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. If you love Christ, you'll live according to his word. You can't love Jesus and hate his truth. I'll just finish simply with this. She said, he will tell us all things. He said, I am he. He has come. He has told all things we need to know. Worship him. Worship him in obedience. Worship him in the gathered church. Worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for, you, for this day. I thank you for this church. I thank you for these brother pastors here and all the other churches represented. God, I ask that you would take 
this message and the other messages that have been preached and the, other mes- the message that will be preached later on after lunch, God, I pray that you'll take it and use it for your glory. I pray that it will prod us to obedience. I pray that worship will be the state of our heart, not simply an activity we seek to undertake. Lord, help us. We can't do it on our own. It is only by your power, through your spirit, according to your truth, that we can worship in the way that you've commanded in spirit and in truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen and amen.